Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Calvary's been orchestrating this this Lenten event in the Waffle Shop for 92 years. So it's really a profound honor to get to participate in it and thank everyone who organized it and thank you all for being here. I chose the Noah story as my text because I keep thinking about it lately and not actually because I want to be thinking about it. It used to seem to me like just some old myth, Noah and the Ark, like how the leopard got his spots. It, it felt ancient, maybe even a little bit silly, childish somehow. The Lord said to Noah, you better build an arky, arky, build it out of hickory, barky, barky. But lately it seems uncomfortably relevant. Sea levels are rising faster than the most dire predictions. It probably won't be one big giant flood, more a mixture of floods and fires and civil unrest and crop failure and disease, but are we here again on the eve of the destruction of the planet? Not that God is going to destroy the earth, but given the threats we face and then this founding narrative where the Judeo-Christian God sees how corrupt the world is and decides to blot it all out. I mean, it's no wonder to me that this text doesn't come up in the lectionary that often. It's a story that could make a person wonder about this God who changes God's mind so dramatically about creation in the very first chapters of the Bible. That doesn't seem very reliable. And what is God even? Shouldn't God be like the definition of reliable? Someone, some way, something you can trust? I believe that. But trust in what way? Trust for what? In the first chapter of the Bible, God looks at what God made and says it's good. We're just six chapters in, And God is sorry God ever made it. Says it's all evil. And I mean, that wasn't the new atheists who made up the story of the flood to cast dispersion on God's character. It's a Judeo-Christian founding narrative. And sure, there's the rainbow promise at the end, but there's the blotting out of everything that breathes in the beginning. I love it when God surveys all of creation and says it's good. It's unsettling that God changes God's mind. Maybe it's that God is a creative type, like the ultimate creator, and creative types aren't reliable in the same way as the administratively gifted. To create is precisely not to entirely control. 
There are risks involved in any creative act. There is always the possibility of loss, even disaster, whether you're making a baby or composing an opera. And I mean, talk about taking risks. There's this very quiet, peaceful void. And then God creates creatures that roar and hiss and grunt and chew and lie and murder. Maybe God didn't think it all through very carefully. Should have taken a little more time with the process. God creates the birds and says, let them fly. Astounding work, brilliantly executed. Colorful, gorgeous, complex, some of it. Other parts a bit more crude. How would you describe a cockroach or a blobfish? I wish I had slides to show you. A sea sponge. Avant-garde? But God looks at it all, everything God made, and says, it's good. It's very good, actually. I've always liked that quite a bit. Like it's somehow personally reassuring a a blessing on all that is. But all good might have been a stretch. I mean, maybe when surveying one's creation, some circumspection is appropriate. I love that in the first chapter of Genesis, God looks at what God has made and says it's very good. But maybe it shouldn't be entirely surprising or even completely disappointing. God comes back to God's work after a while in these founding narratives and realizes that it was maybe more of a shitty first draft than an actual masterpiece. I could be wrong, but I think that maybe we shouldn't take that personally. In the first chapter of the Bible, God creates and says it's all good. By the sixth, God looks at it and realizes God was wrong. God sees that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. The earth was filled with violence. The text keeps pressing the all, the everything, all of it, the entirety, entirely bad. The whole project, a complete disaster. But maybe this sweeping condemnation is a little overdramatic in the way artists sometimes tend to be. Swinging from grandiosity to loathing. It's so good. And then later, it's embarrassing. Or maybe it just reflects a growing honesty or self-awareness. Creating is a risky endeavor. God feels terrible that God's creation hasn't turned out well. It grieves God's heart deeply, the text says. It's not an easy decision. But God decides to scrap it, this first draft. Hit delete. Let it dissolve under the faucet in the studio sink. Start over. But maybe the point of the story isn't about this huge mistake as much as it is about this discovery of a path forward. Life is gorgeous, and it's terrible. Poverty cancer, tsunamis, it is not all good. 
God sees this. And there's something about that that's actually reassuring. God's not some Pollyanna in the sky who could never say a bad word about anything or anyone. God is not a false optimist or a liar. The Judeo-Christian stories are about death and resurrection, sin and grace, not the power of positive thinking. God sees that God's creation is not all good. Well, what sort of self-deceived, egomaniacal creator wouldn't eventually see that? And it grieves God deeply. There are flood stories in the founding narratives of many, many cultures, similar to the one in the Bible. Some deity sends a huge flood to destroy a world gone wrong. The floodwaters provide a possibility of some sort of cleansing or rebirth. There's almost always a hero in these flood stories. They're often very intriguing characters, cross ogres in Norse mythology. In the Sumatran folktale, the hero is a goddess who flies down on a white owl accompanied by a dog. In an Indonesian story, the heroes are a mouse and a pregnant woman who escaped the flood in a pig's trough paddling with a pot ladle. In a story from Korea, the flood hero is a boy who is born to a fairy who copulated with a laurel tree. Noah seems a little bit bland in comparison to those characters. The ancient rabbis were puzzled by Noah, a little bit offended even. The text says Noah found favor in the sight of God. They wonder, why? What did God like about him? God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world, every single living thing. And Noah says, nothing? No questions? No arguments? Later in the text, other men will argue with God when God says such a thing. Abraham tries to convince God not to destroy Sodom. On Mount Sinai, God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy all the Israelites for worshiping being the golden calf, except you. And Moses totally refuses that deal, advocates for the other people. Abraham and Moses entreat God on behalf of the people. Noah, in the face of the destruction of the world, is silent, takes instructions without question, picks up a hammer, and starts pounding nails. How is this righteous? The rabbis surmise, when God says to Noah, you shall enter the ark, it's actually a promise more than a command. Noah isn't any more righteous than any other man. He is the recipient of a promise. You shall enter the ark, and it will change you. In the ark, this womb-like space carved out of the water, this human will be remade, reborn. Noah becomes a good man in the ark, the Midrash suggests. Not by battling forces of nature or striving for moral superiority, but because he learns to feed the animals who are with him. The right food at the right time, according to the rabbis. Learns how to care for them and keep them alive. The ark is where Noah learns kindness 
learns to be attentive to a vast array of others in a way that requires the sort of curiosity that leads to tender concern. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, according to the Genesis story. But maybe they didn't really know what God was like. The human who is remade in the ark will come out not yearning for grandeur, but more grounded. God devises to reconceive the human not by spiriting him away to some high holy place, but by having him build an ark and gather every kind of animal and every kind of food that the animals eat. And then spend 40 days and 40 nights pressed up in this close space next to the animals. There's not an option of separation. What a creative idea. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he spends his 40 days and nights with wild beasts too. Ask the animals, they will teach you, Job says. Consider the birds, says Jesus. Like humans have something to learn from other creatures. That should be obvious. Children know this instinctively. They learn from animals. There are actual studies about this, about the profound role that animals play in the moral and emotional development of children, how their attempts to discern among different types of animals and animal behavior enables them to create richer mental worlds and a greater range of emotions. And then they enter the adult world, where they often lose some of this curiosity. We humans have often believed that we alone are the crowning glory of creation, as if we're somehow above the rest of the intricate web of life, as if we didn't need worms to aerate the soil in order for us to grow food, as if we didn't depend on bacteria to make our digestive systems work properly. But human self-sufficiency is a lie. Maybe that's a big part of the problem, that we can't embrace how dependent we are on all the relationships that make life possible. Humans are so full of pretenses. How little like other animals are we? But elephants grieve for their dead, ravens fall in love, monkeys address inequality, wolves miss each other, plants learn, trees communicate, mushrooms might save the world, I've read. And we all eat, digest, move our bowels, die, become dust. The urgency of us acknowledging that we're not more important or better than everything else has never been more apparent. God says to Noah, build an ark. Fill it with every variety of animals and all the different foods they eat. I mean, spend some time imagining that scene. Just the mealtimes. Barking, neighing, slithering, mooing. I think I've imagined the ark as a long but, but relatively peaceful ride. But Noah must have been really busy. One Midrashic author writes about Og the giant, called the pursuer of ecstasy. 
who clung to the side of Noah's boat as the floodwaters started to rise. So Noah poked a hole in the side of the boat so he could feed the giant to keep this giant alive. As if keeping the giant pursuer of ecstasy alive was somehow essential to the process of the world being remade. What a journey. What a story. This is God's way of working out God's second draft, God's recreation. God learned, I mean, Noah learns to be a feeder. Noah learns to be a life sustainer. Noah learns to pay attention to a very great array of needs. And it's in the ark, pressed up against the animals, that Noah becomes a new sort of person. God, through the whole ordeal, becomes different too. God suffers in the process of recreation, rebirth, death, and resurrection. Though powerful, God is also vulnerable. God feels, regrets, hurts, sorrows, is described as having a heart that breaks. The ark makes its way through the water. God has been in pain. And then finally, after, after a specific period of time, the water breaks. The doors of the ark burst open. And every living thing that swarms and creeps, every beast, every bird, everything that moves upon the earth tumbles out of that womb-like space. And you know what? After all this, it's still not all good. It's kind of a mess. Imagine every kind of animal and people all confined in the smallish space for many days. They emerge smelly and irritable. No one needs a drink immediately. God sees that it's still not all good, that the imaginations of human hearts are still capable of evil. But it's as if God isn't concerned any longer with perfecting his masterpiece. God decides instead to love. God surveys the messy, fragile, volatile, crazy, beautiful creation and pronounces it not so much good, like objectively good, but loved, subjectively, madly, wildly loved. Now, instead of pronouncing the work very good, God promises everlasting love. That's the covenant that God makes with Noah. The way forward, God decides, is love. How corny, how beautiful, and how true. That's what we can trust, love. Love is messy and painful, more difficult almost certainly than the initial act of creation. But as God watches God's creation tumble out of the ark, this is the path she chooses. I'm not sure what happens now for us in this new stage of the life of creation, the Anthropocene. But God's promise of infinite love and everlasting mercy still stands, of course. 
God is very creative, so there's that. And God wants us, needs us to come along with them, to choose love, however difficult, messy, and painful. You know, build an ark, find all the animals, and keep them alive. That was a pretty big ask when you think about it. But what an honor, you know. What an honor to be asked. What a joy, even. What could be more life-giving than being part of this wide-ranging, utterly inclusive covenant of love? There are a lot of ways to build an ark. Plant trees, make rooms for the homeless, reduce our dependence on fossil fuel. May God free us to act in the face of fear and to love in the face of crisis. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.